1968, the BBC sat down for an extended interview with an aged J.R.R. Tolkien. It had been over 30 years since he first began to pen the stories that would become known as The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. As he reflected on the primary ingredients that make for a compelling, grand story, he paused momentarily before pinpointing the essential theme of all the great stories. Death, he bluntly stated. The inevitability of death. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Deep Talks. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. And in today's episode, as we approach the end of Lent and we make our way towards the Christian celebration of Holy Week, which includes, of course, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I wanted to recontextualize and reframe the message of Lent and Easter in its ancient context. I wrote about this on my Substack page in an essay entitled, Easter Doesn't Erase the Inevitability of Death. And what I wanted to do today is to share some reflections from that essay. If you're not subscribed to my Substack page, feel free to do so. I will put a link in the description below. Of course, today's episode and all of our episodes and my writing over on Substack is provided free of advertisement, free of subscription charges because of the generous support of listeners just like you over on Patreon. Most of the evangelical contexts I've inhabited over the course of my life have not celebrated Ash Wednesday, and many spoke little to nothing of Lent, aside from the occasional chiding of Catholics like Tolkien for practicing what they perceived was an unbiblical, morbid fascination with suffering and death. Yet these days, I've come to wonder whether our avoidance of these historical rhythms of church life are symptomatic of a deeper, fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel— One that attempts in vain to make death evitable and demotes the Christian story to some small and paltry anesthetic for our anxieties about death. Many of us have probably attended a wake or a funeral and overheard a well-intended attempt at consolation offered to those mourning their dead. Something along the lines of, they're in a better place now. To some, this might be some salve to their grief, but many others still find this kind of platitude enters their heart like a Trojan horse carrying nothing but shame. One might be tempted to think to themselves after hearing such platitudes, is it selfish of me to feel this sadness over my loved one's death? If they're in unimaginable heavenly bliss, then shouldn't I be rejoicing? And yet aside from those instances where our loved one lives well past ages of average life expectancy, rejoicing that someone has passed on feels wholly unnatural and untenable. If we were made solely for this spiritual paradise, what's the point of God ever making us here in this flesh and blood world? Discounting the pain and grief of loss was never the intended message of the resurrection to the earliest Christians, nor was it the remedy for a generalized death anxiety that many modern people experience in a quest for perpetual youth and denial of our finitude. To better understand the pastoral and theological thrust of resurrection hope, we will want to go back in time, before the birth of Christ even, to see the earlier development and debates on the resurrection of the dead in the Jewish community. Now, many of you may know from Sunday school lessons that in Jesus' day, the two primary religious and political factions in Judea were the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And you probably remember that each had divergent opinions on this event known as the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees did not. You can see this described in Acts 23.8 as one example. The Pharisees consider themselves to be the righteous continuation of the Maccabean resistance to cultural assimilation from the Hellenistic world. The Maccabean revolt took place between 167 and 160 BC, when a rural Jewish priest named Matthias and his famous son, Judah Maccabee, or Judah the Hammer, rebelled against the Hellenistic Seleucid Empire, who was demanding that the Jews and their newly subjugated domain publicly worship Greek deities. All of this is relevant because we can read in the book of 2 Maccabees, a book that is part of the Roman Catholic, Coptic, and Eastern Orthodox canon, but isn't in the Protestant canon of scripture, we can read there about stories of a family of Maccabean brothers brutally tortured and executed for not recanting their faith. And we can see there how they taunted the Seleucid king with a future hope, their hope in being raised from the dead because of their faithfulness to God. For example, one brother mocks the king, quote, you accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws, end quote, 2 Maccabees 7, 9. Another says, as they cut off his hands and then his tongue, quote, I got these from heaven and because of his laws, I disdained them and from him, I hope to get them back again, end quote. 2 Maccabees 7, verse 11. The hope of the resurrection for these brothers was not just to settle anxieties about getting old and eventually dying. Their hope was tied to the righteousness of God to one day settle the score of history's wrongdoings. To best understand the hope of the resurrection for the New Testament authors, we need to situate it within this second temple context. Before the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of its people, the Hebrew people seemed to have very little concern about life after death. God's covenant with his people was primarily about rewards and punishments in this life. As I've written about in Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering, questions of theodicy were thrust into the forefront of Jewish religious dialogues during the post-exilic Second Temple period. If the righteous who diligently follow God's law can still suffer terrible hardship, often at the hands of those who completely disregard God's will and ways, and die just like the wicked, what point is there in being righteous? How can God be just if this is true? Nestled into the prophetic writings of Daniel, a prophet in exile, there was some small kernel of hope that death is not the end for all. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and contempt. Daniel 12, verse 2. What could this mean? Is there hope that the righteous martyr, the one unjustly enslaved, and the victims of Babylon in all her forms may one day be vindicated? Clearly, this was the hope of the Maccabean brothers as they were tortured, and it should be noted, just as clearly, 
that their hope was not in a disembodied paradise for their souls, but in a future resurrected state of being that would even give them back their dismembered bodily parts. The vindication of Christ's resurrection and the hope of the apostles must be set into this proper contextual understanding. Easter is not about giving us some psychological anesthesia for the pain and tragedy of life. It does not make the eventual decay and death of our bodies a curse, a cycle that all the universe seems to run on from its first moment of existence. No, the resurrection hope is a hope that, to quote the Apostle Paul in Romans 2.7, those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. My body is headed to an inevitable grave. I honestly don't look forward to that. But that's not the enemy Christ came to defeat. Adam and Eve didn't die in the garden after their sin, yet in a deeper sense, the sense that God was speaking in in Genesis 2, they did. They experienced alienation from their intended union with God. That was the death God was speaking of. And if they continued on that otherwise inevitable trajectory, disorder and dysfunction would reign. Babylon would be king. But Babylon is not king, even when it seems like the wicked rule. A slain lamb is king. This is our hope. So we press on in exile in Babylon as agents of liberation and renewal in the spirit and manner of Christ, persisting in doing good. If we die before ever seeing the fulfillment of our work, the Christian hope is that we will be raised to life into a world of vindicated fulfillment. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23. Thanks for listening to today's short episode. Just to prove that I don't always have to be long-winded, maybe occasionally you might find an episode here or there that uh, you can listen to rather quickly, especially most of you who I know are listening at 1.25 or 1.5 speed. Maybe this was something that you were able to uh, digest during a uh, quick commute or a... uh, dishwashing session so thank you uh, for listening and again if you would like to follow my writing on Substack you can find a link in the description you you can subscribe there I don't do any of the you know here's a subscription charge anything like that Um, because of the generous support of listeners and readers just like you people like Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, John Mark, Jesse, John Mark, Josie, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, and Sam P. Thank you all for your generous support. Hope each of you are finding some time to check out the bonus episodes I've been posting on my Patreon page. And if you have questions that you want to have in a future Q&A episode, make sure you submit them to me. You can direct message me. 
on Patreon, or you can post them when I offered the opportunity to say, hey, here's a opportunity for a Q&A episode, post in the comments below. You can take advantage of that or in the Discord server for our Deep Talks community. All right, friends, thanks for listening. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.